Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Niall Morris. And today we've got another Critical Appraisal Nugget podcast for you. This time we're going to be talking about a great peril that much important research has sadly fallen victim to. It's been torpedoed by the statistical U-boat of selection bias. Niall, why is selection bias so important? Selection bias can completely negate the findings of a piece of work. It can call into question the applicability of its results and render it useless to clinicians. And we've appraised so much great research in Journal Club that has sadly fallen victim to selection bias and we're just not sure that we can trust the take-home messages from the study. It is such a shame to see when years of work sometimes went into a study, yet it's just let down through its design. So it's really important that we should be able to understand selection bias. Niall, putting it simply, what exactly is selection bias? It's a systematic difference between the study population and our true population, basically the patients that we see. It sounds pretty simple. Putting this in a practical way, let's say we had a diagnostic study. What things are we looking for to know if there's selection bias? If we were going to look at a diagnostic study, say an ECG, we'd want to know that each patient getting that ECG is the same as the patient that would get the ECG in our department. It's important that there's no systematic difference between the patients who are included in the study and the patients who might undergo this diagnostic test in practice if we were to implement it. So there are several sources of selection bias. One of them is the environment in which the study was conducted. How might the environment influence selection of patients? Well, patients themselves select where they go. So if someone's got chest pain that they're not particularly concerned about, it's likely to be musculoskeletal and they'll likely go to see the GP. If someone's got crushing central chest pain that they're worried is of cardiac origin, they're likely to come to the emergency department. So there's a different prevalence of disease there. In general practice, for example, we might have patients with a very low prevalence of disease, low severity of disease, and in the emergency department, that's very different. It's a higher prevalence. It explains why not every patient in the GP gets sent in for troponins, while we've got a lot lower threshold for putting people through a diagnostic test for ACS. So these issues, prevalence and severity of disease, really influence how a diagnostic test, for example, is going to perform. And similarly, we'd be interested to know if the patients were recruited in a specialist environment where the prevalence might be particularly high. What we really want is to see that the patients were recruited in a setting that's similar to the setting in which this diagnostic test will be applied in practice. Another issue that might introduce some selection bias is the issue of timing. How might timing introduce selection bias? Well, if someone comes in at the start of a pathological process, a diagnostic test, say like for CRP and appendicitis, is pretty much useless. But if you were to pick up patients three days down the line and do CRP testing on them, CRP would invariably be raised in the majority of patients. So if you took the two different populations there at the beginning or say even just 24 hours later, the diagnostic test, despite being on the same patient, will perform absolutely differently. So a really important point there, thinking about when the patients were recruited to research, and even just a few hours can make a difference in research into something like acute coronary syndrome. There's another issue with regard to timing, and that refers to things like retrospective studies. How might timing be an issue in a retrospective study? If you look at a prospective study, there are often protocols that specify sample size, for example, or why they're going to recruit over that time period. With a retrospective the time periods left at the whim of the authors. They often try and explain why they used a certain time period, but a lot of the time you're not sure what biases are acting upon the authors, whether they realised it was a bad year, whether there's a lot of talk about how many patients they treated with a certain condition. 
you just can't really account for it all. And that's often not appreciated, I think, when we critically appraise studies, that the selection of the study period, particularly in a retrospective study, is potentially subject to important biases. And that brings us on to one last issue, uh, perhaps the most recognised source of selection bias and possibly even the most important. Uh, it has to be convenient sampling. Yeah, absolutely. The issue of convenient sampling over consecutive sampling. Why is that important? With a consecutive sample, you'll get all comers. There won't be any risk for bias there. And if you do a convenient sample, it's invariably due to resources a sample taking during daytime or office hours. If you're taking only patients in the daytime, there is a risk that you miss out and you lower your prevalence because the more severe, the more the pain is, the more likely you are to come in at night. So if you do have a proper pathological process causing that pain, say your abdomen or your chest, you'll come in at night with a hell or high water. But if it's just a niggling abdominal pain that isn't really anything, you'll probably just pop in at three o'clock in the afternoon just to get a checkup. So there could be a really important systematic difference between the patients presenting during the night or during the day and by day of the week. Might be differences in the severity of disease. But not every study will be able to recruit a completely 24-7 consecutive sample. Should we insist on that? It would be ideal if every study could have a consecutive sample, but we also have to be pragmatic. In the real world, research is not a wash of money at the moment. And we have to realise that it's sometimes the only way to get a study off the ground is to do a convenient sample when the resources are available. I think we have to be pragmatic and accept that there will be a lot of studies with convenient samples. Yeah, and we can look at measures the authors might have taken to try and reduce the systematic differences between patients who are recruited and missed. We might have evidence of screening logs, uh, differences between the patients who are recruited and not recruited, if that's available, or measures that are taken in the recruitment strategy to minimise those systematic differences. But we can't always insist on a 24-7 consecutive sample. If we did, we wouldn't have very much to critically appraise. Oh, it'd be a quiet journal club. It certainly would. So in Journal Club today, we looked at a paper by Sharifi et al. published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And in this retrospective cohort study, the authors included 23 patients who had a PEA, cardiac arrest, and a confirmed diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. And they were looking at the efficacy of half-dose thrombolysis. We were quite concerned about selection bias in this study. Why was that? One of the first things that was discussed was the time period that was selected. 23 months seems a bit arbitrary and there was no real explanation for it in the paper. We don't know why they... Was it because they knew that more people in that particular time period survived and went on to then get CTPAs that confirmed the thrombolysis had worked or for what reasons, we're not too sure. Yeah, and there was no sample size calculation, so we don't know specifically why they chose a 23-month period. Is it, as you say, because they knew they had patients with good outcomes after thrombolysis and confirmed PE in that period? We just don't know that with this retrospective study. The other thing that concerned us was that they included patients who had a confirmed PE. Now, they're looking at the efficacy of thrombolysis in patients with a PEA cardiac arrest. And when we treat patients in the emergency department with a PEA cardiac arrest, I don't think we tend to know that they've got a confirmed PE. You don't have a crystal ball? No, unfortunately not. You could argue maybe they could have used an echo or something, but still then it's very subjective and it bring its own biases in that we don't know. And the fact they've just had to go to get a CTPA means they had to survive. 
which then brings in its own bias. Yeah, so they've specifically selected survivors of the PEA cardiac arrest who've gone on to have imaging and have the pulmonary embolism confirmed. And that's very different to the population in whom we'd use thrombolysis in practice. We'd use thrombolysis in patients with a PEA cardiac arrest in whom we assume the diagnosis was a pulmonary embolism. And they're very different patients. Exactly. So the efficacy of the thrombolysis may be different. The harms and side effects may also be different. So we hope you've enjoyed listening to this Critical Appraisal Nugget podcast on selection bias. We'll put the links up on the website. And we're now off to see our own undifferentiated cohort of unselected patients in the emergency department. From us at St. Emelins, take care. Goodbye.